Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have an incredible episode on this fine Lee Jackson Day. That's right, we do not celebrate the ostensible holiday or the national holiday. We celebrate Lee Jackson Day on this podcast, even though Virginia and other southern states got rid of their days honoring the great Confederate generals. We're still going to be honoring it on this podcast instead of Martin Luther King Day. But the fact that it is Martin Luther King Day, we are going to have a, an episode about this, or that's going to be the first primary topic that we're going to discuss on this podcast today, because I did write an article about MLK Day, what it means, or why conservatives should criticize him and attack him, because MLK worship gives us DEI. And I discussed that at length in the article. I'll go over a little bit, but most of what I'm going to talk about today is why conservatives, most conservatives, with the exception of Charlie Kirk now, Charlie Kirk is delivering the ranks. Uh, Charlie Kirk has been delivering some very key comments about Martin Luther King that have been very true. He's saying, you know, MLK was an awful person. We only care about him because of one quote, which he didn't even believe, which is true. And the one quote that all conservatives reduce him to. And this is 100% true. I wrote about this in the article, but anytime you see a conservative talk about MLK, it comes down to that one simple quote of just saying, we're going to judge people not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And they're like, this is a rebuke to the woke identitarians of the left, and we've got to push them along. Like BLM does not want you to know this. And that's generally what they view MLK is. It's just one quote. And today, uh, Mike Johnson even had a, a tweet honoring MLK. And the tweet said, of course, quoted that one statement, that one sentence that Martin Luther King said. And even there was a Federalist article uh, that I'd noticed that was published um, either today or yesterday. I'm not sure when it was published, but they tweeted it out today. And I think it was by some black conservative. And the whole article um, acted like MLK's entire philosophy was in that one sentence. And the left hates him for it. Article provides no examples of the left hating MLK. And just goes off and says, look at these terrible things the DEI wants. It wants uh, affirmative action and racial preferences and hiring and reparations and stuff. And it's like, well, if you look at what MLK actually said and believed, he wanted all this stuff. He wanted racial quotas and hiring. He wanted reparations. He felt that white America owed a heavy financial debt to blacks. And not just to blacks, but to all minorities that included Hispanics and Indians. Because in his final protest that he had, the Poor People's Campaign, which was going to be set off, I think, in June of 68 or sometime in the summer of 68. He got killed in uh, April of 68. When he's protesting for economic, uh, on an economic socialist agenda in, in Memphis, or what's something that didn't really deal with race, it was something about a radical economic agenda he was campaigning on in, in Memphis, where he got killed. But even this poor people's campaign, that was a very rec radical economic justice about how America needs to embrace radical wealth, wealth redistribution to non-whites. Then that's what white America owes. He believed that America was fundamentally white supremacist. And the only way it could clear the stain was by some form of reparations. And even his you know, signature goals of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act I've been terrible. They have been they have been dramatically terrible. They've expanded massively expanded the federal government. They've imposed 
all these types of quotas. I mean, both have imposed racial quotas of a different nature. We've imposed racial quotas on electoral districts, as what's happening in the Southeast right now, where the federal courts are saying, oh, you guys have to create a second majority black district because that's what the voting rights says you have to do. So it's interfering in states' rights and their ability to govern their states. It also interferes with how with how companies hire and who they hire and their workplace practices. And it pretty much ended freedom of association and all these other great liberties that we've enjoyed since the founding of the republic. So even his those goals, which you say, oh, this made America much better. Actually, they did not. So it's necessary to attack Martin Luther King, even though it is maybe not so politically popular because he is the most arguably the most revered figure in American history. And I go over these stats in my in my article when he died in the late 60s, public approval of him was very low. It was under 50%. And it had been declining throughout the 60s. I think around the time of Actually, I don't think I know around the time of his first appearances in the early 60s, a plurality of Americans had a favorable uh, opinion of him. August 64, you know, this is after uh, the March on Washington and Civil Rights Act is being pushed. 44% of Americans had a favorable view of him. Now, by May 65, this is after the Voting Rights Act had been passed. A plurality of Americans had an unfavorable opinion about him. It was 45 to 46 favorable to unfavorable. And by August 66, when this was, you know, there was more riots being associated with him. Americans were upset with his opposition to the Vietnam War. They were seeing him as having a radical economic agenda. 63% of Americans had an unfavorable view of him. And I guarantee you if polls were taken in, say, March of 68, it would have probably maybe been closer to 70% of Americans who had an unfavorable view of him especially because a lot of these civil rights protests were turning into riots, much like the mostly peaceful Black Lives Matter protests. But by 2011, completely changed. 94% of Americans have a favorable view of them. And I don't think today, it'd be tough to see what it would be today. It could be higher. It could be like 96%. Because a lot of these, I wouldn't even say they're boomers. I would say silent generation and greatest generation types who would have been answering these poll questions who have a, a strong memory of what King was like in the 60s have died off and it's pretty much mostly boomers and Gen Xers and millennials and everyone else who've been indoctrinated into this worship of King since his death in 68. So it could be higher, it could be lower uh, due to conservatives being more uh, made aware of these arguments against King, which have been happening slowly and surely. I mean, it's not really been at the level of Fox News taking on King or really talk radio taking on King. It's mostly been on the online sphere with major influencers, uh, columnists, and people like that. I think Matt Walsh, prior to Charlie Kirk, was the first... Or no, it wasn't Matt. Matt Walsh may have done it, but it was um, Steven Crowder who did it. Uh, I'm not, I can't, don't quote me if uh, Matt Walsh, I would think that Matt Walsh has had some criticism of MLK, but Steve, prior to Charlie Kirk, Stephen Crowder was the biggest conservative personality who had done a whole podcast attacking King. And maybe the online sphere has had, has made people more anti-King, but you have to remember is that it's pretty much just the dissident right and the elements of the online broader mainstream right that they've been able to that we've been able to influence that have turned against king 
There's many arguments saying the left has turned against King, but there is no evidence of that. Like the right, the left can see King for however they want. Now, some people, you know, the most logical or natural inheritors of King's legacy are the black um, ethnic lobbies, you know, the black lobbies that exist today. NAACP, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, those people are in direct line to him. I mean, Jesse Jackson was arguably his direct successor. The conservatives don't like to acknowledge this, but Jesse Jackson was one of his chief lieutenants. Um, you know, he was there when MLK was shot. He was seen by many as the successor to King. I mean, he was not the formal successor. Uh, obviously, some of these uh, people around King had disagreements and arguments over what it is. Uh, Jackson went a little bit a more slightly radical direction in the 70s. He was wearing a dashiki and very much in the Afrocentrist and uh, catering to black nationalism. But by the 80s, which is what most white conservatives remember him as, you know, and that type of image of him, I'm shaking down corporations and being very uh, left-wing economically and, and always blaming whitey, totally in line with King. You know, and some people were like, well, he's more crooked. It's like, I, I don't think he is as much of an adulterer as, as King. I think he was as well. I mean, the whole that whole circle around King, except for, I think, one person, which I can't remember one of the pastors, but pretty much all of them were just like, it was like a rock band when they showed up in town. They would just like fuck every groupie that there was. Um, there's a hilarious story about them going to his Nobel Peace Prize. I forget if it was 64, 65. And they went there and they're pretty much just like shouting down the hall about how they want to fuck a white woman and all this stuff. It's like, you know, Guns and Roses had come to town in like 1989. But instead, it's a bunch of black pastors. <laughs> and it's like, uh, well, that's what they were doing. You know, they were, uh, that was their way. And there's obviously, some people were pointing this out and getting mad at my article. But, you know, the article couldn't include all of MLK sins. And I was just trying to focus on his ideological failures to prove to conservatives like, hey, he was definitely not a colorblind conservative. This guy was totally in line with DEI and the squad. But there is one is like there's a recording about him. You know, one of his friends was recalling a rape and them all laughing about it and having a, a and laugh and, you know, just having a whale of a time over this rape. And this is just type of behavior he had. But all that aside... Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, all these people that are like the race hustlers, those are direct in line with MLK. But everyone else can find who they want. And so with the left, like saying who the left hates, DEI, the DVI commissars, always adopt MLK and they find his words and opinions, his actual words and opinions, much more than just one sentence like conservatives, to use to argue for their ideology and their mission. They do not attack him, okay? And there's, I saw some conservative cartoon where it's like, yeah, um, it's MLK speaking as I have a dream speech. And then behind him is a bossy black woman with DEI. It's like, I don't agree with that dream. On reality, DEI, every DEI commissar 100% agrees with King. None of them attack King. So those types, you know, the woke left who may not even be black are totally in line with King. The, you know, socialists and communists who are there, you know, the people who are even like, we need to focus on class first and economics first. They're pro-King too, because they see in King a social democrat, which he was. And they see him as having a, building a universal coalition that moved beyond identity politics, which is not quite true, but he did want to build 
a broader coalition of the have-nots, which were largely non-whites, together to demand wealth redistribution from middle America, from white America. And so they see that message and like, he wasn't ground down in identity politics, which is not which is not true but it's they're closer to the mark than conservatives so they so if you ever read like any of these communists or you go to that trotskyite website that was attacking 1619 project i think it's like worldwide uh web service i forget their the the name of the website but it was very popular during the 1619 project attacks because they kept interviewing these prominent historians attacking the 1619 project and uh, conservatives still love that website. They're like, these guys are still leftists, but they're making a lot of sense. And it's uh, okay. Um, maybe that's true, but I'm not going to read a Trotskyite website. And it's like, who, what is a Trotskyite? Who's influenced by the Trotskyite website? Anyway, um, all that aside, you know, everyone likes him on the left. There's no, they can't find an example. And even like you could say, the only group that was really tough on MLK on from in the 60s was the center left you know was the part of the great society coalition that uh lbj was building you know he was very upset and how mlk was uh you know calling for more radical changes in the economics and also opposed to vietnam and a lot of the mainstream liberal organizations were attacking him obviously uh they no longer do that and also the kennedys uh, wiretapped him you know and rfk jr is even defending that which is uh semi-keyed i would say it's really it's funny at least and you had those elements but obviously the center left loves king will never dare criticize him about anything you know even when it's brought up that he was a plagiarist or he's a serial adulterer they're like oh no, no we're not gonna even address that you can't address that uh, unlike all other historical figures in America, which are qualified by their alleged mistakes, usually most of their mistakes are just having the wrong views or politically incorrect views for 21st century America. You know, those have to be emphasized. We have to always say that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson were slave owners. That always has to be at the forefront. But if you say that a king was a plagiarist and a serial adulterer, they're like, that. that's racist. You can't have that. And they all try to hide his actual errors and failures. And you're not supposed to address that. And it's very politically um, incorrect to say that. So he's the only one. He's the only American historical figure. You're not supposed to qualify his alleged achievements with his successes. Or his failures, rather, I meant. <laughs> so center left no longer criticizes him. He is one of their both center left and far left love MLK. And they find what they want. They can easily find a message they agree with in MLK. And even the one critical element that was the harshest on him were the black nationalists, which black nationalists are not really much of a thing anymore. At least in the way they were in the 60s and 70s, there is a lot of black identitarianism. It, but it, that the type of identitarianism is something different than the militancy that you saw with the Nation of Islam. You know, they are not into racial separatism anymore. There is similarity with the Black Panthers, but they're not as economically radical anymore instead of like demanding you know a break free a break from capitalism they're trying to shake down these major corporations and get appointed to their dei chiefs or whatever so they're working within the capitalist system they no longer have the communism of the black panthers nor do they have the racial separatism of nation of islam and the, <laughs> the goofy religious ideology of the nation of islam as well uh, that's not quite the case. 
And so those elements were very critical of King because they didn't go far. They saw him as like a toady of the white establishment. And they were like, he's a slave to capitalism or to slave to the white man. And they were incredibly critical of him. But today, even though black radicals all love King and they look to him as saying like he wanted to put black people first. He cared mostly about securing black interests above all. He supported reparations. So all the real black radicals still like him. I'm sure that there's some cranks out there who are minor influential or not influential, but very fringe figures without any influence who may criticize King from a black nationalist perspective. I think that the nation of Islam, I think largely likes him. A Farrakhan himself praises MLK. I think the white man killed him, or the white supremacist government killed him, so they're all into MLK. And when it comes to the right, you know, because he's the most, one of the most loved or respected figures, and I cited this in my article, is they listed all these historical figures from American history, you know, Roosevelt, Jackson, Jefferson, Washington, Robert E. Lee, Columbus, uh, I think, they, you know, Rosa Parks, they had all these uh, figures in American history. And King was tied with Lincoln uh, for how many Americans believe he should be honored publicly. Both of them had 77%. Now, there's a slightly higher number of Americans who said that King should not be honored. Like, I think it was like 10%. And then with Lincoln, it was 8 or 9%. So, or you, you could say that Lincoln is the more, most revered figure among the public. But if you look at public discourse, K Lincoln definitely has far more detractors or hardcore detractors that have influence. Because there's a lot of leftists now who actually don't like King because of what he did to the Indians or some of his racist views. There's a lot more criticism of Lincoln. Also, there's a lot more criticism of Lincoln historically from the right, uh, particularly libertarians, for his tyrannic, uh, for his tyrannical rule, and for other reasons, and uh, you know, crushing the South. Obviously, a lot of uh, people that would be called neo Confederates didn't like Lincoln, but among the general public, among the normies, he is revered and seen as the greatest president of all. But King is more honored. Our more Americans think that he should be honored publicly than Washington. Washington's only sixty-one percent. Jefferson, it's in the low 60s. And then Columbus and Jackson, it's below 50%. So he is more honored than they are. So, and this is why conservatives try to grasp him as their own because if you, one thing in their mind is they think if this universally popular figure is seen as a leftist, then people will push for leftist goals. So then we have to appropriate him and take him out of context in order to argue for the type of conservatism that they want. And I kind of understand why they would do this, but there are major issues when this comes to this. Because at the end of the day, if you are upholding the cult around MLK, that helps the MLK, that helps the DEI crowd. That helps the squad. That helps all these people who want a more radical agenda, a more anti-white agenda to further their goals. If everyone is loving him, okay. And then they're like, oh, he said judge people by the content of their character. And he's like, well, he actually blamed white people for all this. And he said that white people owe blacks a check. And then they're like, well, what, 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 that's not the real king. Actually, that is the real king. So it forces people, if they love king, to once they get acquainted with his real views, to maybe then adopt those views themselves. 
And that's the problem with honoring him, okay? And if he is the most revered figure in American history, that helps the cause of DEI and affirmative action and anti-white politics far more than anything else. And so I think it politically pragmatic, as like some people have argued us. So Rob Amari had an article, which it was like, the right is getting weird. It's attacking MLK. And it's like the MLK cited Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. He was a devout Christian conservative leader and a total bullshit. He's like, he loved America. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's like the left is more correct. And he's essentially trying to say that Martin Luther King was a post-liberal. I mean, it is funny how everyone just sees Martin Luther King as like everything. If you want to see him as a communist, you can say he's a communist. If you want to see him as a social democrat, you can say he's a social democrat. Um, you want to say he was a black nationalist, they can say he's a black nationalist. If you want to say he's a post-liberal, they can say he's a post-liberal. If you want to say he's a moderate liberal, they can all say that. And conservative, obviously. Uh, I'm sure even libertarians have somehow found ways to justify him as a libertarian. I don't think they have found a way to discuss MLK as a white nationalist or a fascist yet. But maybe there's been arguments out there. I don't know. Uh <laughs> So that's like it. So he's like arguing this and he's like, the right, the right knee really needs to ask itself, does it want to oh, really overturn everything the civil rights regime has, has accomplished? And then we're like, yeah. And then he brings up Jim Crow. It's like, oh, Jim Crow will come back. Jim Crow won't come back because Jim Crow was supported by the large degree of personal racism that exists in America. And a lot of that is gone. People who are wearing Jalen Hurts jerseys are not going to be building separate water fountains. You know, they're not going to be doing this. All it would really allow, what it would really allow is that it would allow for a true meritocracy to flourish where we are hiring the best people. We're no longer required to have diversity hirings when it comes to airline pilots or any other of these stupid things. There would also be ways that... You know, if there's a group of magicians, magical, magical Americans who are being disorderly and disruptive in a restaurant or a public place and they push them out, they're not going to be sued for racism. And it's many other things that can happen. It's You're not going to have a return to Jim Crow if you eliminated the civil rights regime. It's like a completely different America now. And, and in many ways, uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing, that's another topic. But it's a very different America from what it was in the 60s. And if you eliminated Jim, or not eliminate Jim Crow, if you eliminated the Civil Rights Act, it would allow for a much better America to emerge. And then worrying about like the Klan and Jim Crow and all this stuff is going to reemerge. That's just not going to happen. It's, you know, there's been way too many changes in America for that to occur again. But the more important part is saying that the right by attacking MLK is is distancing itself, is alienating itself from the American mainstream. Is that you have to be pro-MLK if you're going to be in the political mainstream. And there is a point to that. And I argued with a friend who brought up this point saying like, well, when MLK was trying to argue for his radical agenda in the 60s, he was uh, misappropriating Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers to defend his cause. Even though the Founding Fathers would have found his cause abhorrent, he would just say, oh, I'm on the side with the Founders. Like, this is a part of our founding documents. And this is more of his early, late 50s, early 60s strategy when he was trying to much harder to win over, you know, the center and liberals that he would appeal to this. But by the late 60s, you know, he's much more critical of America and maybe not draping himself in the Founders as much. And he's more criticizing the Founders for all the terrible things they did to blacks. But when he was trying to win over the mainstream, he was appealing to the founders. 
And this friend was saying that, well, now the right, in order to beat back against color uh, against the left and DEI, that it makes sense to misappropriate Martin Luther King and just say that he is just defined by this one quote. And there's another person who had made the same point, and that was Ronald Reagan. When, Ron, when they were considering a Martin Luther King Day in the early 80s, Reagan was mostly opposed to it, but political forces basically made him taken or accepted. But there was a former governor of New Hampshire who was very right-wing, who wrote him a letter saying, MLK was terrible, he was a communist, he had all these personal failures, we really don't, it would be a terrible day for America to honor someone like this. And Ronald Reagan said, I personally agree, but perception matters more than reality. And the perception is, is that he's just, you know, this one sentence, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, actually, I'll read, I have the sentence, and I actually have the sentence that he said, but he was, the main argument he was making is that there's a political um, you know, there's political pragmatism dictates that he has to, he has to honor King. And hold on a sec, take it a little bit to take, pull up the quote. But here's what, here's what Reagan said to this governor who was criticizing for this. On the national holiday you mentioned, I have the reservations you have. But here the perception of too many people is based on an image, not reality. Indeed to them, the perception is reality. We hope some modifications might still take place in Congress. Guess what? None of the modifications occurred. But that that image that they have, the perception, is reality for most conservatives. If you ask the average Republican or conservative, they think that Martin Luther King would have been was a secret Republican, and he would have hated Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and the DEI and affirmative action, all this stuff. And they don't really know the truth about him. And then when someone confronts them with the truth, they may their whole world might be shaken. Imagine if you had loved. Thomas Jefferson all your life, and then you found out that, you know, he's a communist. Obviously, he was not a communist, but, you know, that might shake some people's foundations of what they're told. And, you know, I think it's up to conservatives to make this message clear to their people because it matters. Political pragmatism aside, you can't make everything about political pragmatism because political pragmatism would dictate that we start to champion MLK as our own. And most of the distant right do not want to do this because they have, you know, an inbuilt inherent revulsion towards an opposition towards MLK. And we intrinsically know that there's something wrong with an America that sees Martin Luther King as the greatest American that ever lived. And we want to change that, regardless of what the mainstream and the majority of the population think about MLK. We want to change that view because we know that our ideas cannot flourish in a society that treats MLK as more important than the founding fathers. And so we get that. But there's a lot of people just like say, well, we need to be as politically pragmatic as possible. And there's still these arguments going on about colorblindness and people going back and forth, and this is within the distant right, and people going back and forth over white identity politics and et cetera. I think a lot of this is driven mostly by internet feuds rather than um, clear-headed analysis of our situation and deep principles. That's generally how a lot of internet feuds emerge. But I think you always have to be careful with this. I do think you have to make our you know, white identity politics, which I feel you shouldn't criticize, even though some of the white identity politics of the past as practiced by the alt-right and others was not the path to go. We, we don't want to do another Charlottesville again, uh, to say the least. But it is going to be a white identity politics of a kind. 
And you do need to make it as palatable to Americans, uh, the majority of ordinary Americans as possible. And it's going to be very different from, you know, nationalisms in the past or things that we see in Europe. You know, it's going to be something that's unique to America and addresses our current conditions. And so I've always been advocating for that. That's why I'm always, you know, essentially uh, the American nationalist position versus the Wignat position, I guess, if that's still a feud going on. Uh, that's always what I've said and used terminology and, and things that actually appeal to ordinary Americans. But there are some things you can't go full in on. And I think when it comes to MLK, that's one of the things. If you want to be fully colorblind and say, this is what our strategy is, this is how we're going to do politics, then we're going to embrace MLK and say he's one of our own. Now, I think when it comes to Republican politicians, there's a different standard to be had. We don't really expect Republican politicians to go off on MLK as an anti-white figure and all this stuff. You know, we would personally just like them to not really talk that much about MLK. But if they do, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world if they are like happy MLK day and they cite the quote. As long as they're, you know, firmly on message on immigration, anti-white racism, you know, and everything else we care about and most of the identity issues, you know, it's a sacrifice that has to be made. So we're not, and it's the same when it comes to colorblindness, you know, we don't expect politicians to go up there and, and read from Jared Taylor's Color of a Crime. That's the goal of commentators. Politicians can just say, we want a country that's just based on, that's merit-based and we want the best people hired for the job. You know, and I think that would, that would largely benefit whites. But when it comes to the commentary circle, are the people who are not bound by the standards that dictate politicians, I think it's you should be a little bit harder on the white identity issues. I mean, just look at what Charlie Kirk is saying. Some of the people on Dissent Right, I don't know if that's their intention, but in some ways they're arguing for a position that's to the, maybe you could argue is the left of Charlie Kirk. But Charlie Kirk is exactly where you want mainstream conservative commentators because he, you know, he's, you know, going really off uh, into the keyed end of the pool <laughs> with his takes. You know, he's always talking about anti-white racism. He's always bringing up, you know, uh, the color of crime. And now talking about MLK, it's one of his most important achievements because he is a big time figure and hit what he says will influence a lot of ordinary conservatives who maybe haven't thought about this stuff or haven't even been made aware of this. And you'll push people in the direction you want. And I think it's the goal of the right wing commentary to push America into the into a better direction. Sometimes you do have to cater to their interests and there are some things you maybe shouldn't be talking about or emphasizing and you do have to make your politics as palatable as possible but you don't want to be fully on their level and what we are advocating is a form of our white identity politics it's not the same as what the alt-right and other you know people were doing it's something different but it is fundamentally about making life in america much better for white americans and ensuring that the historic american nation stays at the core of what our nation is and it's not being replaced and that's why we care about the great replacement because we don't want to live in america where whites are no longer just are not just a minority but maybe not even a plurality of the population anymore and that does require some identitarian thinking 
into the calculus. And so when it's the goal of commentary, you know, commentators and pundits, who are, some of them are public figures. I mean, maybe I'm a public figure. Not as big as Kirk, unfortunately. Not as big as Matt Walsh. And when they are, you know, we're, we should, you know, maybe if they have, say, stupid things and other things, we should uh, politely disagree with them. Or maybe not so politely disagree, but we're allowed to disagree with them. But we want those people to be moving in our direction and saying things that are, not politically palatable and may offend a lot of people and may alienate them from the mainstream because their goal is not to just totally cater to the normie Americans, to the NPC types. It's to wake them up and push them in the right direction. And you do have to take on tough, you know, idols. You do have to introduce hard discussions to them. And a lot of that stuff, it might offend some of them. It may make them more targets of attacks, but it's the necessary thing to do. Politicians, a little bit different standard, but you do want more politicians to bring up the great replacement and addressing anti-white racism. And all those things are good. And it's, so you do have to take on these tough missions and that's how you move the Overton window to our side. And so I'm, I'm very, I'm very uh, white-pilled about the uh, Charlie Kirk uh, thing, you know, just, uh, you know, I think it was two weeks ago, he talks about the Greerhead Pledge. Now he's attacking him. Okay, I only wonder what next he'll be talking about. Maybe he'll be recommending his listeners uh, check out Bursum next. So, and this is all I do have to make a point is that this, uh, I remember in 2020, Charlie Kirk was talking about an immigration moratorium. And I was like saying, the Griper Wars brought us here. And there was a lot of Wignats at the time who mocked that idea and were like, and they kept bringing up this tweet. I don't think they bring it up anymore because they now see that it's 100% true with Charlie Kirk is the Griper Wars that happened in 2019 is why Charlie Kirk and other major mainstream right-wing figures are saying this stuff. I mean, prior to the Griper Wars, Charlie Kirk would have never said anything like this. He would have been, you know, talking about how we need more immigration and how diversity is a strength. And all these in all these terrible things are very cucky things. And now he's, you know, he's like an alt right podcast from 2016, and that's a direct result of the Griper War. And so you do have these pressure campaigns do work from our side, and that's why we need to push more of the mainstream right in our direction into adopting our views. And there's no better way for them to signal that than to attack Martin Luther King, where it is very much important for us to dethrone him. Now moving along to other subjects. Also today is the Iowa caucus where Trump will finally win and DeSantis may drop out tonight. I was thinking about talking about this more, but I mean, outside of predictions, uh, Trump will win. The only question is, will he get over 50%? And the bigger question is actually, um, I don't know if it'll make much of a difference if he gets 48 to 53%. He could get over 55%. If he gets over 55%, I think it's just pretty much over. I mean, it's already he's already going to be the nominee, but it's a matter of how whether some candidate could maybe have a chance of winning one state. The real question is who's going to finish in second place. A lot of the polls are showing Nikki Haley in second place. I think the Des Moines Register poll, which is considered the most accurate poll, had her as a narrow second place, I think with one point ahead of DeSantis, or maybe it was, um, I might be thinking of a different poll, but it's very close between DeSantis and Haley for second place. And who gets second place is very important. I think if DeSantis gets third place, he will drop out. I 
have a suspicion that he will endorse Nikki Haley because his wife will not allow him to endorse Trump. It'd be smarter for him politically to endorse Trump, but his whole campaign at the end has been so negative. He's like, the conservative media isn't calling out Trump. This is, you go easy on him. Why aren't you calling him out? Please call him out. And then he gets a participation trophy from a Trump supporter. He's like, I can't take this. Casey, save me. Casey comes in and takes the participation trophy, which is so funny. And he's just like, they're high in Florida. We're going to lose some more in Iowa. And his uh, shills are acting like he's going to win based on AI polls. Uh, Maybe if he loses, they'll have an AI caucus that shows him winning. But he's not going to win tonight. And uh, even if the snow, you know, pushes out some supporters, but he's not going to win. And that's just the fact. I mean, most of most Republicans are just coming around to the fact that Trump's going to win. It's why all these Republican lawmakers are now suddenly announcing that their endorsement for Trump. Hardly any Republicans endorsed his opponents. I think only six, five or six um, congressmen endorsed another candidate. Uh, I think it was five endorsed um, Five endorsed DeSantis and one randomly, a South Carolina lawmaker endorsed Nikki Haley. And that's it. But that just shows like how all the leadership sees the writing on the wall and they're backing Trump. And that's that's what's going to happen. Now, the interesting thing is if DeSantis finishes in third, I think he will drop out, which will be really hilarious for his supporters. Might not be good as good for Trump because if he does drop out, he may endorse Nikki Haley, but even if he doesn't drop out, or he doesn't, rather, he doesn't endorse Haley, a lot of his supporters could go to Haley, and she could win in New Hampshire. And that is that there's a much greater possibility of someone of Nikki winning in New Hampshire than DeSantis winning in Iowa, because there was one poll that showed Nikki Haley within three or four points of Trump. That's very close. Um... Uh, and it all depends on this. Now, if he comes in second place, I think he's going to stay out. He's going to stay in the race, probably campaign more in New Hampshire, probably cut into Nikki Haley's lead, and then I'll ensure that Trump wins in New Hampshire. And we'll, you know, we'll have a very uncompetitive, we will have a very boring primary where Trump just wins every race. If Nikki Haley, if Nikki Haley wins in New Hampshire, Trump's going to still be the nominee, but it may be a little bit more competitive and there will maybe be a greater chance for hijinks or some type of shenanigans to deny Trump the nomination at the RNC. I don't think that any of this will work because it'll piss off uh, it'll piss off the majority of the base. So I don't think see that happening. And Trump's just going to win a primary. I mean, anytime they have him head to head against any other candidate, he gets over sixty percent. Um, how do you win a primary when your opponent has over sixty percent support? <laughs> Uh, the other thing is, is Trump attacking Vivek. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he should. Uh, you know, I still like Vivek. But it is like obvious. Like, you know, Trump is saying this stuff because he is, I think he is worried about New Hampshire and potentially losing New Hampshire. And he knows that most of Vivek's voters would be voting for him if Vivek wasn't in the race. So it's more about trying to pressure him to drop out. Hopefully Vivek drops out after Iowa so we can ensure a Trump victory and then he just cruises to and he just cruises the nomination no chances for hijinks and no real opposition and he can focus on the general campaign against Biden 
But it would be really funny if DeSantis endorses Haley. So on one hand, it's better for Trump to have DeSantis to stay in the race and for him to finish second. But in a lot of ways, in the schadenfreude of just seeing all these DeSantis supporters who have been warning about a Trump-Haley ticket then have to start chilling for Nikki Haley, it'd be so awesome. It'd be so incredible. It would be... um, a real uh, moment, but if your main thing is to see the humiliation of the Santoids, that would be the option you want. But I'm not 100% certain that he will endorse Haley. I do think there's a greater chance of him dropping out and endorsing Haley than him endorsing Trump. Most likely, he just drops out and doesn't endorse anyone. Um, That would be my guess. Uh, but it would be really awesome if he endorsed Haley, even though that might uh, even it probably doesn't really matter if he who he endorses if he drops out and he endorses no one. I think a lot of his voters will still go to Haley if he drops out and endorses Haley. Same, probably the same amount of voters will go to Haley, but it would just be a t- complete own of his incredibly annoying online supporters. So we'll talk more about this later on this week. I'll probably do an IQ supplement on the latest in the election, probably a postmortem on the uh, DeSantis campaign if he drops out. Um, if he stays in, um, I'll probably delay it till uh, later on in this month. But if he drops out, I'll do a postmortem on the race. And so I will probably do, I don't want to guarantee it, but I think I might do an IQ supplement on the election later this week to see how everything turned out in Iowa. So that's a little bit on that discussion. And then for the third topic that I wanted to talk about, it's something I want to, I'm going to write an article about this and I want to describe it as the rights MG Tau strategy of men going their own way strategy, MGTOW. And for conservatives, there is a very much of a similar strategy. Now for MG Tau guys, they say they're leaving you know women behind, they're going their own way, and because women are just too much to deal with and if they go their own way, they're going to have more freedom and eventually women are going to beg for them to come back to them. So they're leaving their bitch of an ex-wife and they're just she's going to wish she had him back. And for the right, they have a, this strategy for a lot of things. And you could either call this whites going their own way or conservatives going their own way. Both work. Um, it's depending on who your audience. I mean, the thing is, is like those who would say whites going their own way and conservatives going their own way both advocate for their own strategy. So we'll just call it whites going their own way because most conservatives are whites. Um, <coughs> are white, so it means the same thing. But with whites going their own way, this means that they are leaving the universities, they're leaving the military, they're leaving the police, they're leaving the schools, they're leaving the cities, they're leaving the major corporations, they're leaving all these things that are these important institutions to America, and they're leaving them. And in the same theory with men going their own way, if they men leave marriage and they're, you know, putting women on notice that they're no longer going to take their shit that eventually the women will change and they'll beg for them to back and like, oh, we're so sorry, Harry. I'll take you back. I won't be I won't be a bitch anymore. <laughs> Whatever that is saying. And this it really motivates and this is very appealing to a certain type of Gen Xer. I think the one thing that 
uh, a big reason why the retreat and abandon these options are uh, retreat and complain appeal to the right so much is that a lot of our audience is Gen Xers, many of whom are divorced. There's a big reason why national divorce became the favored term for secession because this is what they've gone through themselves and just like with divorce they're like now i can get away from my bitch of an ex-wife and get back at her terrible lawyer they think that they can do the same with the country which is that's not how countries work but anyway they think that all this if they leave and leave all this behind that somebody will come that the government will come up to whites and be like oh we're sorry whites we're gonna change we're gonna be totally different we're gonna let you do your own thing now, which is not the case because just like their Benjamin ex-wife finds another man to marry and likely forgets about the man going her own way, the government just finds new people to take these jobs. And universities, they're having no problem finding people to replace whites. I mean, if you the people are t tweeting about, and I tweeted about this, Johns Hopkins uh, incoming freshman class, it's only 16% white. It's not just whites are, whites are far away from, are not even close to being a plurality at this school. And a lot of elite institutions, whites aren't even the plurality anymore. Now whites are still the majority at flagship state universities. I provide a bunch of examples such as UT, Knoxville, Kentucky, Alabama, Indiana, a couple of other places. You know, there are the, and these are decent schools. They're pretty good schools. Uh, you know, they're not quite maybe elite, um, but they're, you know, good schools. Whites are overwhelming majority. A lot of them, it's over 70% white, uh, which is whiter than America. They're whiter than America. <laughs> and so there are a few schools like that, but most elite schools, they are, whites are not a uh, majority and they're starting to not even be a plurality anymore. And you also, and I know a lot of people are going to bring this up, is that a lot of these whites who are there likely don't feel that they are quite like white Americans themselves. A lot of them are, are Jewish, and so there's something in a, another category for them. And a lot of them ins insist that they're not white. Um, as you're seeing with a lot of these Israeli protests where they're like, we're minorities too, and we're sort of POC, and the POC are like, no, you're not. But So they're kind of their own little thing. So they're not really the standard white Americans either who are at a lot of these elite universities. So that's something that's happening all across the board. And I think with universities, it's a little bit different from what's going on in the military, which the military is going to be the main thing I'm going to highlight. But universities, that's by design. They don't want whites to go to these universities. And whites are in turn not going to these elite universities. But there is a huge trend of white men abandoning universities because the white percentage is overwhelmingly female. I mean, school universities are now 60, 40 male to female. It might even be a little bit more. When I was writing my book, it was 60-40. I'm 60 female, 40% male. It's probably, it might even be more now. And at some schools, it's way more, way more lopsided. And males are just dropping out and, and not really doing anything. And they're not joining the military either. It's a wonder, what are they doing? Now, for some people, they think that they're doing something much better. I mean, few of them are, some of them are going to trade schools, but a lot of them are just... Uh, getting fat and playing video games and, and getting addicted to opioids. You know, they're not quite, you know, they're falling behind in society. They're not building an alternative power base or a parallel economy or parallel society. They're just being left behind. As everyone else, uh, you know, women and minorities take more of these roles. And it's especially true with the military. Now, the military army just released, um, there was just released figures showing that 
whites are only 45% are under 45% of recruits now. And that's a major change from 2019 where they were over 55% of recruits. I forget if it's 56% or, or 58%. So it's a major drop in just five years. And well, I think these are 2023 figures. So a major drop in, uh, in four years. And there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. Now, it's a gradual process and it shouldn't be that dramatic, but there are fewer white youths now. Uh, the under 16 population is uh, majority non-white. And some of these guys who may be signing up or who are white may say that they're another category now. And that's become much more common. There is this flight from whiteness, but I, I think that doesn't, that would still, even accounting for that, it would still be under 50%. It may push, you know, these guys would have been white four or five years ago, but now they're saying there's something else that would probably only push it up over 45%. I, it would still be white minority army or minority of whites as army recruits. So that can that only explains it partially, but there's also fewer whites themselves. But that still doesn't explain quite the dramatic. It explains the decline, but not quite the moving to from majority to a minority recruits. And then even all the other conditions is like there are far and the army went through this. Is like the army is saying a lot of the guys that they're recruiting, you know, are no longer in shape. You know, they were used to be very heavily reliant on the South. And the South is much more morbidly obese. Now, a lot of that is not just due to whites or not even due uh, mostly to whites. That's due to uh, more mat uh, more diverse categories. But that also applies to a lot of rural whites as they, they're not healthy enough to join. And there is a declining health and fitness among youths. Once again, that does, that's been a long-term trend. That doesn't quite explain the difference between, four, uh, between 2019 and 2023. And then there's the fact that along with the physical fitness is that a lot of these guys are now drug addicts and they can't recruit them. They mentioned this in the articles is like a lot of these guys are just hooked on drugs and they can't, you know, they can't join the forces. And so taking to, taking all these factors together, maybe this would definitely explain a decline from 2019. But I think from, it would maybe be hovering around 50% accounting for these long-term trends. But the... Going to 44% uh, or just under 50, 45%, that's something else. And it is true. I do have to admit, I have been skeptical about these claims that a lot of the Army recruitment or recruitment is down due to uh, people fleeing from wokeness or fleeing from these woke policies. And the Army military is starting to admit that this is the case. It is a lot of other factors because they're not able to make quite make up for the white deficit with non-whites and a lot of just youth in general whether they're white or non-white don't want to serve there's the level of patriotism among young youth is significantly has significantly declined even just for millennials uh, and certainly from gener generation x and boomers but the marked decline is definitely among whites and that would be the anti-woke stuff is getting to them. So I think that conservatives are having a point there. I think it is confirmed by this. And they did talk to recruiters who are complaining about, hey, they're like, well, these kids might not care about it. But when they talk to their elders, you know, their parents, their uncles, their teachers, their coaches, 
And these guys are watching Fox News and listening to talk radio. And they're like, the army's gone woke. You shouldn't join. Uh, you know, look at all these terrible things they're doing now. And conservative media has definitely started criticizing the military, which is something unprecedented before. I mean, in the past, it'd be like, it's a soldier. It, Total, you know, complete salute, never dropping the salute, you know, total worship. And now they're being much more critical of the military and attacking generals, which they would have never done before. And so that is getting down to these kids. If like these kids are like, well, what should I do after college or not after college, after high school? And these, you know, they go to their elders and their elders are like, don't join the military. It's a bad call. It's woke. It's gone woke. It's gone full Bud Light. And so they're not going to join the military. I don't know if these guys are doing anything more productive than joining the military. Because um, based on the figures, it's uh, the military is complaining about how bad drug abuse is getting uh, among the youth, and especially the youth that they would have tried to recruit, which a lot of places are rural whites, and also obesity. So maybe if they're not really doing much productive things uh, besides joining the military. But it is something. And so I'm, I'm a little bit divided on this. Because... I think, you know, there is something if you're boycotting something, you want the military to change by saying we're not going to join unless you get rid of DEI stuff, unless you get rid of this indoctrination and, uh, you know, these woke advertisements and these woke priorities and other things. We're not going to join. And the military did relent. I mean, part of the reason why they got rid of the vax mandate is because of recruitment problems. And I think that was a tangible thing. And I've always admitted that I think the vax mandate was hurting recruitment. But they've had the Vax mandate gone for over a year. I think they got rid of it sometime in 2022. Might have been early 2023. Um, but it was around that time. And that was due to response to the horrible recruitment. And there's definitely, definitely a lot of conservative white kids who would have otherwise joined the military. Like, I'm not joining the military. I don't want to get the jab. But then they got rid of that requirement. And it seems the recruitment has only gotten worse among that demographic. So there's definitely something going on. And maybe that might make the military change. But there's also problems with what I'm seeing a lot of right-wing commentators are saying this. They're like, oh, this is awesome. This is really making the empire pay. We're really sending a message. They're really hurting. And the military is collapsing, which is not quite the case. If the military really needed bodies, we have a millions of illegal aliens, most of them fighting age males who they can just recruit in. I mean, obviously, they'd be inferior soldiers to the rural whites, but, you know, they'd be soldiers anyway. Uh, Romans did this. Several other empires did this. This is not unprecedented for them to just find random people to replace uh, the core population who aren't deciding to fight and fight for them. So they can find easily. And it's very bad to have a military composed of foreigners who are hostile to you. <laughs> uh, I don't even need to, uh, I shouldn't explain why, but these are people, if they needed to use them against the core population, these people would have hardly any problems or qualms with doing so. They would gleefully shoot down the native population and have no problems with it. Even in Spain, you know, Spanish Civil War, obviously most of our audience is on the national side. You know, the nationalists in Franco used uh, Moroccan troops to against the Spanish population. And they had f fewer qualms about doing war crimes because they're like, these are foreign people. I, I don't give a shit about raping and pillaging their, their town. And my commanders are saying I could do this. And so there was a lot of war crimes committed by the colonial troops uh, in Spain over that. 
that's not to say the nationalists were still uh, were the real bad guys of this. I mean, the communists were doing uh, horrible things to their own people. But I'm just saying that it was easier for them to do these war crimes against uh, their own people or not against their own people, against a foreign population. It's always easier to usually to do that for soldiers. And it's just also a way that our enemies then control all these institutions. And what do we have to stand against them? It's not like there's like some base patriot militia out there that's uniting all these kids or recruiting all these kids. It's not like these guys are forming their alternative universities or anything. It's just that we're now turning into, whites are just turning themselves into a demi-class that are not involved in the military, not involved in universities, not involved in the most prestigious white collar jobs, and we're just all stuck to doing menial blue collar. I don't want to describe, I don't want to condemn blue collar labor, but we're just condemned to blue collar labor, which a lot of it people may enjoy and, and, and appreciate, and it's definitely necessary. But that's not power in our society. That's not what gives you influence. You are fixing the toilets and the air conditioning of people with power and with people with more money than you. And that's um, and they can dictate how your life is run and what is happens with this country. And if the whole military is on you know, the side of the government, then who do you expect to... Like if the government becomes a tyranny, then what... What mechanism or what institution do we have to resist that? Bob's Plumbing Company in Pulaski, Tennessee? That's it. That's literally what you have. And I don't think Bob's Plumbing Company, even though they everyone there might be very based and right wing, I, I don't think that they're going to be able to resist <laughs> every institution be on the enemy side. And so I, I don't... I'm going to talk about this more in the column because I've already spent most of my mental energy on the big topic around MLK. Um, but I, I think it, there is a there are problems with this MG Tao strategy because, like with these men who think that the women will beg for them to come back, the women are not going to beg for them to come back. They're just going to find another man, and then the man ends up without a family, alone, and without children, and they end up the one really hurt by this rather than the woman. And I think that the whites going their own way strategy is similar to what happens with the rest of society. Is that instead of you know, the government coming back and begging for us to return. Then said the government's like, oh, well, we'll just take these illegals and new Americans as their replacements. Might be a little bit inferior, but whatever, we'll take it. And then whites are just become more impoverished and lose any semblance of power and control they have over this country. And I think there is like problems with that because it happens with the military. It's like the strategy is like everyone leaves the military. Okay. Step two, question mark. Three, imperial collapse, okay. Four, uh, total uh, base and red pill takeover. And I think, that, you know, there's there's probably a few more steps missing there, but there's like some very key things. It's like, well, what are you, what is your long-term goal of this? What are you hoping to accomplish? And really for all these people, it's very much in the same with the MG Tau guys is that, well, eventually they'll beg for us back. And then what if they don't? Then you're fucked, then you're screwed. And you're left to be the party most harmed by this retreat than the one you're trying to punish. So I'll fully flesh this out in a column later this week. So be on the lookout for that. May come out next week, but I'm going to try to get this this week. So that is it for the regular topics. Now on to the cognitively questions. And there's a new thing with cognitively questions. There's a new place to sign up for that. Or really the same domain would work 
but I do have a new proper domain for highly respected. It's taking a little bit to set up. I might be having some boomer tech issues with setting it up, but it will be set up by this week. The new URL is highly-respected.com. I'm 100% certain. I'm pretty certain that the old uh, URL will work of highlyrespected.substack.com. But as a reminder, you two get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Convalete option at Highly Respected Substack, which is now at or should be at highly-respected.com. But for this podcast, it'll probably still be highlyrespected.substack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we will see if we finally, Boomer Greer can finally overcome these tech issues and finally get the new URL up and running by later this week. So I'll start off with a question from Appalachian, and he asks, what is your stance on the Houthi conflict in the Red Sea? I've heard many stating that we should pull out our ships or that this should not be our issue. I believe Yemen's hostility stems from the U.S. support for Israeli trade through the sea. That is it. But I can't get fully on board from retreating from police in the seas for international trade that I've seen some on the right calling for. It's a big point of debate within the right on what America should do with its military power. I hear some say that we should be rugged isolationists, while others give a neocon answer that we should be preserving democracy in other countries. For the good of humanity, perhaps the answer is a mix of both. I think Trump recently said it best in a town hall in Iowa when referring to the failure of the Iraq war. He said, to the victor belongs the spoils. Do you agree with the idea of doing imperialism right, or do you think the military and its doctrine of of war needs to be restructured completely to fix the reckless spending and deaths and conflict we gain very little from. Yeah, with the Houthi conflict, uh, it is driven by Israel, and it is a problem that this war could escalate into a regional conflict and whether we could be drawn into, you know, war in Yemen. And now they're striking American ships. Um, and that's really in part what Houthis want. Uh, but it is, yes, caused by Israel, which is another reason for Washington to tell Israel to wrap it up in Gaza. You know, Israel's like, we're now going to move on. We've taken over northern Gaza. They claim to. We're going to now move on to the rest of Gaza. And Washington be like, no, you're done. It's over. We are not going to take the entire Gazan population, which that's their long term goal. The war is over. Time to time to say you won or whatever. Move on. Because as like for the rights, main goals have always been. No military intervention from America, no immigration from Gaza, and no censorship of dissidents here in America over this foreign policy conflict. Those are the three key points. And I think as the conflict escalates, uh, those three things become, are the thing three, the, the three things we oppose become more likely. And so that's why I think this is a more resolution. But also at the same time, are pulling our ships out? No. Like, no one else is going to police the fucking seas. Everyone appreciates America policing the seas. Even all these European nationalists and identitarians I talk to admit that we're think who are very anti-America admit, well, we, we're glad America polices the seas. And there's you're going to have a degree of trade uh, between countries, even if you're, you know, pushing more for an economic nationalist model. And you do need the seas open. I mean, if you just did have all these pirates running everywhere and whatever their ideology, that's not what we really want. And that would hurt Europe really bad. Europe would be helpless to this. They don't have the military ability to really combat the pirates. Uh, You know, UK is only kind of a junior partner in there. It's up to America to do this. And, you know, Houthis, 
outside of the reasons, you know, they can't really attack American ships. And it is like always, you know, there's at some point you have to respond, but I think with the hoodies, you have to be a little bit smarter. But if there's like other pirates, I imagine it's like some people on the right would just be like, oh, base African pirates striking against like the Somali pirates striking against uh, the American ships or something. No, you you want the Navy to be there to to rain hellfire on these people uh, just to maintain order and stability in the world. And so another thing, it's like, I don't think you know, people like, well, if the empire collapses, then we'll take charge. And once again, going back to my last point, it's like we have no apparatus to take over. Like we have no real organization. You know, it's we don't even have we have the GOP. That's it. We, there's no real power base to take over if like the empire collapsed. I mean, you could say one thing is like, OK, there's all these right wing people in the military. And then, you know, if the civilian government falters, then we can put our people in place, like something you would say, like in Chile or Spain. That's clearly not an option here. Do you want, you know, people like uh, General Milley as a military dictator? I don't think so. And so you don't have that option. Uh, You know, it's hard to figure out what apparatuses we have. You know, the GOP takes over. I mean, even that's not like that enviable. It's like MTG or Lauren Boebert dictatorship. I don't think we want that either. So it would make one sense that people are calling for this collapse and saying like, oh, this is going to lead to better things. If you had an apparatus, you know, alternative apparatus to, you know, the empire or like institutions that you were in charge or a counter elite ready to go to take power. We don't have that. So really what we would just have is the real apparatuses that it would be there to take charge in an imperial collapse are, you know, the remnants of the military, cartels, gangs, uh, probably some of these billionaires would finance like their own private security forces and other things, unless their wealth completely disappeared and just things like that. None of them, there's not like a real red-pilled option here, unless maybe MS-13 becomes based in I don't know. I don't know what happens there. So you don't really kind of, if, that's why I'm always a little bit skeptical of the collapse things, because it's just like hoping, well, things just get so bad and terrible that something will happen. But ultimately, a lot of things just can, worse and worse can happen. It's, you know, it's like a Roman hoping the Huns defeat the empire, and then the real Romans will take charge when, in fact, it was just foreign barbarians who took over and made life worse for the old Romans, for the most part. Uh, so that's always one thing I have to say about the collapse thing is that you need something, you need a, there's always missing steps to this stuff uh, to happening and you do need that outside apparatus. And it's the same with like not joining the military. If these guys were going and joining something more important or better, far better than the military and something that really emphasizes that there's uh, whites are abandoning the concept of America and are seeking something new and different, that would be one thing. But a lot of these guys, they just go and don't do anything and maybe they get hooked on drugs and get fat and obese. And so that's not really uh, quite the protest. So that's something I always have to say. Um, but when it comes to yeah maritime trade, I do support using naval power, American naval power for that. With the Houthis, it's a little bit different situation because ultimately we could... S- the real root of this cause is different from other pirates. It does have a political solution It our there is politically connected. It does have something that we need to be pressuring Israel on to be like, hey, you're, this might shut down, really hinder international trade. And we also don't want to get into Yemen. It's time to wrap up your conflict and end it. 
it's done. Uh, we're not going to be writing a check anymore. And that'd probably be the real way to stay with hoodies. But also the hoodies may just keep doing this for their own, for other reasons. And you have to really respond with force and violence to ensure that they don't try to keep doing this. So it's a little bit of a complicated situation. I'm not one of those people who are like base hoodies. Um, I would like to say it's not really our problem. I don't really care what Yemen does outside of attacking American ships or trade, uh, you know, Saudis have been trying to deal with the Houthis for years and years, and they can't be able to get rid of them. So they are a serious military force, which is why we should definitely not have be careful about military like having a serious military intervention into Yemen. But at the same time, I would probably say a little bit mix of both. But I actually think the real question is doing imperialism right, which is what Trump advocates for. It's not like you know, intervening for humanitarian reasons are displayed liberal democracy. It's just about making the lives of Americans better and ensuring that we get the spoils that are belong to the victors. It's like similar with like Trump. It's like the Iraq war was stupid, but we should have taken the oil. We didn't take the oil. We got nothing, no benefits from that. So imperialism should be always trying to bring benefits to Americans and not trying to get clogged up or clogged up but bogged down and these foreign conflicts that have nothing to do with us are based on stupid you know these allies that aren't very good allies are trying to draw us into a war or that we're trying to spread liberal democracy doing the imperialism right would put america first and that's real and our current imperialism does not put america first and so i think that's just needs to be the mission from that with the hooties um so I guess that's a little bit complicated answer. I don't want to give a full definite one because, as I said, I think the real solution is to tell. It's like Israel, it's time to wrap it up because we do not want to escalate this in a regional war. We do not want to fight in Yemen. We don't want to have any more involvement in this stuff. And Israel's actions, continuing war, is make, increasing those chances. But, at this, uh, but if the Houthis continue to attack after the war is over, then they're fully deserving of violent retaliatory attacks. So the second question comes from Jack. Jack asks, two-part question regarding the James Lankford immigration deal. What are the odds that this gets through the Senate? One, I have, I have to pull back. It's not clear if this is a full set deal. The full set deal is really bad. You know, it's offering more visas for immigrants. It's essentially has some amnesty components. It really is not going to solve the issue. It's really going to increase legal immigration uh, and maybe not even really decrease illegal immigration, but there's so much hostility towards it from the right that I think Lankford is going to have to take out some of these terrible measures to get Republicans to agree to it. Now, the odds of it getting through the Senate, whatever deal is, are pretty high. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that because it all depends on the reaction. And... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read the second question because I think that I'm going to just answer them both. I see a lot of dissident right accounts saying that GOP politicians despise their base in which they could just be Democrats. I have no doubt this is true for some of them, but I wonder how many of them are just incredibly stupid and think these deals actually help the country. Since you worked in the mainstream conservative media, politics and media for a while, I was wondering if you had any insight into this. Okay, those are two different separate questions. But one, what are the odds that this gets to the Senate? Uh, very little, actually. Or Congress, I would say very little. I don't think I'm much. I was more optimistic that they'd have a serious border deal uh, before uh, the new year, but now I'm very skeptical of this. I think 
the border deal is going to be too much to sell to both Democrats and Republicans. They're not going to have enough votes for it. It might have enough votes for the Senate, barely. But I don't know if if both Republicans and Democrats are attacking it, and they're like they're you know the Squad and the House Freedom Caucus are attacking it. It's not going to make it through the House, and that's so. Even if it's good, even if even if it's better, I don't know if it can make it through the through the Congress. But as the deal stands now, they're not going to sell this through the House. It may pass the Senate, so it won't become law. And that's my thoughts on it. I'll probably just talk about this more next week once we actually get the bill, the text of the bill, and we can see how political reaction is to it on the Hill. But two on. I think, guess the question is, do I think that these guys secretly wish they could be Democrats? No. Actually, I, I disagree with that. They just have a different idea of what they think the Republican Party should do. Hatred for Democrats and like seeing them as like the real enemy, as like a tribalistic manner, is like a core part of Republicans. You know, you may think that they don't differentiate themselves that much, but they really do have differences, even with mainstream Republicans. Mainstream Republicans, it is very much of an economic disagreement with Democrats, but that really heavily motivates them. They think Democrats want to take their wealth and tax them a lot, and they represent unions, which they very much oppose to, and they're very much opposed to small businesses, which they feel is the Republican core. And so there is something um, tribalistic to that, even if they may agree on foreign policy issues and maybe even agree a little bit on immigration. But I think for most GOP politicians, they do not wish they could be Democrats. I do think among some conservative pundits, they wish they could be liberals in a way like David French, because if they're liberals, then they're published by The New York Times. They're invited on TV. They're respected. You know, they get awards and stuff. But they really want that respectability. They want to be that one nice, respectable, smart conservative. And that and they get that through being published through the mainstream outlets. But when it comes to Republican politicians and the that political infrastructure, even if they don't share a lot of our radical ideas or dissonant ideas, they're very much firmly opposed to Democrats. And I've talked about this a lot. Some of it's very stupid because it's, you know, eventually their whole ideology becomes owning the libs and they'll adopt, you know, white privilege as Nancy Mace was doing last week to try to own Hunter Biden. They'll adopt like these uh, same anti-racist metrics. Oh, the Democrats are the real racists and that stuff. But this does make them just see Democrats as like a as like an evil, and it's something they really don't want to be a part of, even if they may have similar ideas to them. So that's something I could give a little bit more insight on um, later on in podcasts. But I, I think it's just. Um, you know, it's kind of like Rhino. I, I don't really mind Rhino, but the problem really isn't Rhino's. Um, it's like Republican in name only. That does show you a little bit about how conservatives and Republicans operate is that the fact is that they're not a true Republican. They're not a pure Republican, which for Democrats, they don't really seem to care that much about. It's like they're not, they don't have dinos uh, or dinos to attack their... Um, the ones that aren't truly Democrats, but there has to be a true feeling of Republican and staying within the party and being very partisan. And they absolutely do not wish they could be Democrats, even if they're very mainstream and we would call them Democrats uh, or Democrats lights. 
so that is uh, one question that we got. Moving along. K-Max, I missed this question last week, unfortunately, but I think uh, I will answer it for today. He asks... Scott, besides Michelle Malkin and Tucker Carlson, would you say the former mainstream right-wing figure who comes the closest to appealing, appearing among Scott Greer on distant right people and views would be Ann Coulter? Your view of Coulter and why she does does not go as far as Malcolm did. Besides Scott Greer's subsec, I read the top two subsects in popularity for distant right ideas as Ann Coulter's and Curtis Yarvin. Mulbuck, your view of those two figures. Um, Ann Coulter says a lot of good stuff, but she's uh, very petty (laughs) is one thing. I think her, you know, she does deliver dissonant right views a lot of times. She's more radical than even she was in 2016, but her main focus is being anti-Trump, being anti-Tucker, usually not for ideological reasons, but for being very personal reasons. And she has a lot of personal vendettas to work out. So she does say she does still have some good columns and some good ideas and some good tweets. Uh, I think she would be mostly on page with our stuff. But what really dominates her thinking is anti-Trump. And I obviously am not really down with that because if you're just anti-Trump and that becomes your defining focus, how are you measurably different from like never Trumpers at the dispatch and and bulwark? So and that's really just what's becoming a def- defining view, which is which is unfortunate. I think you can still be anti-Trump, but focus on other issues and that be your main thing. But I think with Coulter over the last few years, it's just become anti-Trump as a core thing. Yarvin, Yarvin, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a little eccentric. I don't read him that much. Um, he's very different from Coulter. I don't know. It's a completely different category from Coulter. And what he tries to set out to do. Uh, he's not anti-Trump. I think he's still pro-Trump. Uh, some of his views I uh, don't really agree with. Uh, other views I, I find interesting. Um, I wouldn't say both of them taking objectively. I would not have a negative view of either one of them. But they're very, both very in different categories. I would say that the main problem with Anne is that she is extremely anti-Trump and that dominates her core thing that her way of thinking and I think it makes her misguides her on a lot of the political questions that face us today so that would be my answer to that question Yarvin is I don't really have too much of a problem with Yarvin I would say uh next question with next question from K-Max we've got it's a sports question uh, about Caitlin Clark of Iowa, who's this uh, female basketball player. I see more and more about her and even her share of State Farm commercial with uh, Jake. That's one of their, their black State Farm agent. I Googled her highlights, though, and it was all three-pointers and layups. That's always the same with female basketball players. Do you feel that the media feels comfortable promoting her despite being white because she is a woman? I don't just feel a Greer rule can be watching sport play Caitlin Clark, because it's still women's basketball. No, I will never watch women ba- women's basketball. It's terrible. Uh, I always remember growing up as a kid, ESPN would try to include women's basketball highlights. And for all the male athletes, you know, highlights would be a real, like, highlight. It'd be like a one-handed catch in the end zone or just an amazing dunk. And then for the female highlight, it would just be like a simple layup. And I'm like, this isn't very good. And so it's just like an inferior sport. And it's also, I find something very repulsive about female sports because they, they 
they try to adopt like masculine attitudes when they're doing this. So they'll like do chest bombs and they're like, they're like yelling and doing this like, Oh yeah. And it's like, I've never find, I found that very unattractive and generally for, you know, as a straight man, you're looking at women through the eyes of, you know, whether they're attractive or not generally. And if you're seeing them being unattractive and doing kind of like ugly behavior, you're just, it's not, uh, it's kind of a weird thing to look at. Um, so I, I've never, uh, yeah, no, you would never watch women's basketball under any circumstance. And even with Caitlin Clark, I think her like have, being heavily promoted is more part of a, a woke agenda to make us care about women's college basketball when we should not care about women's college basketball at all. And WNBA only exists because of handouts from the NBA and the profits from the NBA and they basically hand out tickets. No one actually wants to watch WNBA. So no, you should absolutely not watch women's basketball. I, I don't feel like I need to have that as part of the Greer Head Pledge. I think that should be obvious to most people. So that's K Max questions. Uh, we'll get to we'll get to mystery here in a bit. Um, I have to find what his question is. Mystery. We always have good questions for mystery. And we have a question from John. Who's diff- we have two different Johns who ask questions. So I, hopefully the other John doesn't say that. John, the other John has a pseudonym last name. So I may start using his other pseudonym for this. But this is just simply John. Following up on my bagel boss question from last week. Have you ever known a guy who dated a taller woman? I ask this question to male colleagues from time to time. And it's amazing how it seems to virtually never happen. I have known men to date taller women. Because in politics, you know a lot of short men. And they often find tall women to date. A famous example would be Henry Kissinger, who I don't think was that short. I think he was like five, eight, five, nine, and he had a like a six foot tall wife. It was a model wife. And uh, there's a famous clip of him greeting um, Mal with his tall wife, and Mal's just like astounded. He's like, oh, you know, he's like soy jacking over this, and he's looking at Henry Kissinger, and Henry Kissinger's beaming from ear to ear over his hot over his hot tall wife and so there is examples of this um a lot of examples uh, of it that i've known uh from people it's very rare though it's definitely a rare occurrence for it to happen but it does happen uh so with the bagel boss guy i think the bagel boss guy can still find his uh woman of his dreams you know there's there is a few women out there who may want to date who are fine with dating a shorter guy. You know, it's just about your magnetic uh, personality and charisma can overcome your height, I think. So we're going to stand up for the manlets here and say that it's okay to be who they are. And now we've got to look for mystery. Okay, I think this is his one and only question. Uh, As always, if I miss questions, just send me a reminder on the inbox. Um, I will get to it. My apologies. We do have a inbox error sometimes inbox doesn't show up because k max i missed his question i clear and i definitely didn't show up in my inbox so it's fine to just uh, notify me again if i don't see it but his question is what are the historic origins of the rights inferiority in human capital it's just existing in a society where liberalism is the is the ideology of high status people you know if you want to advance in society if you want to be at the top law firms you want to get into the top positions of government you are going to adopt to those positions. It's what's the, I don't really want to, you know, flate the, <laughs> the left too much, but this is what 
elite human capital want to believe in. If you want to advance this society, you're going to adopt what the mainstream media and the universities are telling you. And that's how you advance. If you want, because, you know, having opinions different from the mainstream media and the university administrators, it could hinder your ability to advance in society. And I think a part of that rights inferiority in human capital is that it's not the ideology of the elite. The ideology of the elite is liberalism, while the ideology increasingly of the working class, of the white working class, is conservatism, of downscale mobility. And the right, in the past, the right wasn't as eager to celebrate itself as an ideology of downscale mobility because, you know, it was also the ideology the country club set and, you know, various elites in maybe outside of New York City and D.C. and L.A., you know, and flyover country. You know, this is the... The people who are movers and shakers in like Nashville or Kansas City or something, and you know, they live down in the suburbs, they're generally Republicans and conservatives. But it's moved on from that because a lot of they're losing a lot of the college educated vote, they're losing a lot of the suburban vote that they used to reliably count on, and they're sort of making it up for with higher turnout and higher support from. Uh, the rural hinterlands and from downscale whites, but it's not fully compensating for that. And also with higher Hispanic votes. But yeah, it's the chief origin is just that liberalism is the ideology of the elite now. It's been that way since after World War II. You know, it would be very different if we went back to 30s and 20s when the elite had a much more conservative ideology, but it's not been the ideology of the elites for at least... 50 or 60 years. A little bit afterward, I would say most elite still was relatively conservative in the 50s and their attitudes began to change in the 60s. I mean, of course, there was a new composition elite. It's no longer WASP trying to preserve the old America. You know, it's a lot of Ellis Islanders coming in and getting in there and they have different attitudes about what America should be and much more left wing. And thus they're much more committed to liberalism. So I would say that that's uh, partially it. If you want to advance in American society, you want to have the right views so you're not going to be punished for your views and that's going to require you to be a liberal or if people think that they're going to be a liberal. And you can always see this with Indian strivers and how if they want to advance, they become the most devoted liberal, the most that you can impossibly imagine and the biggest believer in whatever the, pop, the establishment wants them to say. And they adopt that in a way to advance more in American society. So that is from Mystery. Now we will finish up with our favorite, one of our favorites. All of them are our favorites, but the one that nobody, that everyone demands to hear his question from, it is from New England Refugee. And he asked, poor old William Penn found that though he was tolerant of the natives, the left would not return the favor. They tore his statue down as if he were a slave owner. Having attended a Quaker school, I can tell you there is no more lip-hearted sect of Christianity than the Quakers. Basically, they worship egalitarianism and hold that everything, everyone has an inner light. They thought of themselves as morally superior and were early adopters of the DEI agenda. What are your thoughts on the dubious legacy of Quakers in America? Also, if they are going to tear down William Penn, then what white man will they keep up? Well, they've promised to keep up William Penn. Because Wayne Penn, it's hard to accuse him of being racism. I think he 
may have he had some ties to slavery but the fact is of how like friendly he was to indians and how they do adopt him as an early precursor to the racial egalitarianism that they want to impose as the core ideology of america today they do feel that that is a bit too far but the first question quakers were the uh huge libtards in colonial America. They were actually terrible. Quakers have always just been really bad. I mean, people always want to blame Puritans, but Quakers were the worst. Quakers always sided with Indians against uh, the white settlers. You know, they the Indians may be murdering white settlers left and right, and the Quakers, as the elite of Pennsylvania, would just say, oh, we're always siding with the Indians. That was that. They would always adopt these social justice missions, they were always huge leftists. Uh, they've always been very bad, and their schools have always been like, an, you know, at the forefront of having left-wing indoctrination among their students. So, I would say, you know, William Penn and the early settlers. You don't want to condemn them too much because you know it's a different standards with all this stuff, and they're not as bad as some of the latter developments. But you know, Quakers at the People were looking for the roots of leftism in America, the American leftism. They can easily find that among the Quakers. Now, what white men will they keep up? That's a good question. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't. I think actually all white men would be subject to being torn down. Maybe uh, except for a football coach or football player outside of a stadium. But maybe they found emails that were racially uh, insensitive or something like what happened with John Gruden. Uh, So especially this could happen with older coaches who maybe they go in their files and find like diary entries that are uh, not very politically correct. So actually, I would say all white men are subject to this. I, I would have to think of. You know, FDR, he would be subject to it. Eisenhower would be subject to it. They've already had calls for Abraham Lincoln, even though, as I said earlier in the podcast, he's the most revered figure along with MLK. All white men are subject to it. No white man is immune immune from this. And white women may be a little bit different. Um, but actually, no, even thinking about white women, a lot of the like early feminists were had racist views so uh especially in america so i don't um no i would say there's no white man that would be immune from calls to tear down now how many of them would they actually successfully tear down that's another question as we saw with william penn they were not able to get away with tearing him down uh due to the outcry over that but pretty much all white figures would be subject to being torn down so on that very optimistic and lighthearted note, I'm going to end this podcast. We've got more great content coming up this week. I may have another c- column to appear shortly on highly respected Substack, And hopefully it, the URL, the proper UL, URL, so I can share on Twitter, will be highly-respected.com. And we will have another great IQ supplement, depending on whether if DeSantis drops out, it will be a postmortem on DeSantis. If it doesn't drop out, we may have a different topic that doesn't deal with the election. But keep an eye on that. Eye on that. So until next time, stay respected.